Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox, and this week we're going to be covering Doctrine and Covenants sections 58 and 59. And I'm looking forward to giving you some insights and ideas that will help you to teach and understand the Scriptures in more relevant and meaningful ways. Now grab your Scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. And what a week we have. Uh, I know that two sections doesn't sound like much, but you'd be wrong. These two sections here are absolutely jam-packed with awesome truths. You could take this lesson in so many different directions. They're rich. They're deep. They're wonderful. In fact, let me just give you an idea of all the different topics that you could cover in just these two sections. You could talk about adversity, persecution, obedience, celestial rewards, citizenship, agency, correction, responsibility, repentance, missionary work, civility, commandments, gratitude, sacrifice, keeping the Sabbath day holy, fasting, happiness, the creation, and using the earth's resources. Just to name a few. So your challenge as a teacher is going to be deciding which ideas you want to cover and and how you want to do that. And sometimes you may decide to go into great depth on just a few topics. However, sometimes it's also not a bad idea to kind of take the shotgun approach and cover a lot of different principles and then allow your students and the spirit to work together and let them go into depth on the principles that they feel are most critical for them. And that's how I'd like to approach the lesson this week. We're going to hit a lot of different truths, but we're going to water ski more than scuba dive. And and then you can allow some time for your class to ponder the specific principles that they need most near the end of the lesson. And maybe some of you have noticed that my approach to the scriptures usually involves giving your class what I would call a handle. And that's the challenge as a teacher. The scriptures have so much packed into them that sometimes it's difficult to carry the specific messages into the heart in one class period time. So so one of the great values of a teacher is in providing a handle for your students to carry the truths away, to give them a mental framework or way of organizing the truths in a simple yet meaningful package. And of course, there's great value in going verse by verse, but that approach is usually reserved for personal study. There's also great value in pulling back and looking at the big picture and seeing how the different parts relate and interact with each other you're definitely going to benefit by going tree by tree. But looking at the forest as a whole can also provide some unique insight and understanding. There's a trade-off in both approaches. So for the handle this week, I like to use the following object lesson. I like to bring in a large uh, model made of Legos. Now, Legos are a Wilcox family favorite, so I have like an insane amount of them. But but you could bring in an example of of anything that you've built in the past. But maybe I would bring in uh, this Lego pirate ship that I built with my son a few years ago. And then ask them if they've ever built something out of Legos or, or anything else for that matter. What's something you've built that you're proud of? And then you can allow some of them to share. And, and then I explained that I'm not creative or smart enough to design this kind of thing on my own. And that I needed some help. And at that point, I like to pull out the instruction manual and tell them that I had to have this in order to know how to create this. 
it's nice to have some instructions before you start building. Well, you can then transition to the scriptures by telling them that these two sections mark the beginning of a new building project in the church. They contain some instructions for that project. And that building project was a city, a holy city. And what was the name of that city? If you're not sure, you can find it in the section heading of section 58. It's Zion. The saints are beginning to build Zion. Joseph Smith and a number of other members of the church have made their way to Jackson County, Missouri, to begin the process of establishing what they called the city of Zion. Now, Zion was the name of the city that Enoch established, which was taken up into heaven in righteousness. It was the kingdom of God on earth. Now, last week, we didn't really go much into section 57 because I figured I'd save it for now. Section 57 is the first revelation that's received in Zion. And it designates the city of independence in Jackson County, Missouri, as the gathering place of Zion for the early saints, and even clarifies the spot for a temple. And a word that keeps coming up in this section is plant, which is an interesting word, seeing that the question that prompted this section was, when will the wilderness blossom as the rose? Before you have blossoms, you have to plant something first. Before you build something, you need some instructions. Well, sections 58 and 59 are the initial instruction manual for the building of Zion. Now, just like with Legos, or any other project for that matter, you build it piece by piece, one brick on top of another, until something incredible is created. And I like to look at these sections as a collection of building blocks, or bricks, of Zion. And each one is absolutely essential to the overall integrity of the structure. And what you're going to notice is that they aren't detailed blueprints for constructing homes and churches and printing offices and schools, although those things are important. Rather, they're instructions for building people. A Zion people. Because that's what Zion really is. Later, the Doctrine and Covenants is going to define Zion as the pure in heart, not necessarily a specific geographical location. And that's why it doesn't really bother me that the Jackson County experiment kind of fails, doesn't it? They failed to create the right kind of people or community in that place. But that's okay, because they're going to try it again in Nauvoo and Salt Lake, and eventually all over the world as different stakes are established. The geographic location doesn't really matter as much as the people that are being built in it. So what I've done is I've divided the sections up into bricks. And each brick represents an attitude or a characteristic of a Zion Zone people, for lack of a better term. Zion Zone people are not your average disciples. They don't just live the bare minimum of obedience. These are people that are raising the bar for themselves, that are striving for the next level, that are growing brighter and brighter until the perfect day. These are our principles of spiritual maturity, which also means that they're going to be a bit more challenging. And here's one way that you can approach this. You may not have time to do all of these, and you don't necessarily even need to do them in order. 
they do pretty much stand alone. But you can display a list of all the possible bricks that you could talk about, and then allow your students a chance to choose which ones that most intrigue them. And who gets to choose? Well, usually I'll start by letting the youngest person in the class choose the first topic, and then move on to maybe the tallest person, or the one whose name comes first alphabetically, or the oldest, or the one who lives the closest, or the one with the smallest shoe size, you know, whatever. You could come up with all kinds of different determiners. But each brick has a specific activity or an approach to it as well. So here are the options. Now, now you don't need to do these in order, but I will, just, just to keep it simple and for clarity's sake. So the first one that we have here, trials and triumphs. And the activity for this section is a video. It's one of my favorites. It's called Good Things to Come. And it's based on a talk that was given by Elder Holland back in 1999. But it's very good, and it matches beautifully with the message of this section. Before they watch, ask them to look for what they feel is the major message of the video. And then, when it's over, have them read section 58, verses 2 through 5, on their own, and pick a phrase that they feel would make a good title for the video, and to be ready to explain why. And then let them share. And here's what the verses say. For verily I say unto you, Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death. And he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter, and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. Remember this, which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. Well, you could choose a number of phrases from there, but for me, I would call the video, After Much Tribulation Come the Blessings. And like Elder Holland said, some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. So Zion's own people understand this divine but difficult truth about tribulation. The blessings come after. And that's certainly going to be true with the Missouri Saints, isn't it? It's almost as if he's preparing them for it. I mean, this is just the beginning, when there really aren't any problems yet. Everybody's excited, they're optimistic. I mean, this is the new Jerusalem, and they get to help build it. But there's some foreboding in these verses. I need you to keep my commandments, whether in life or death. Ooh, that's, that's a troubling way to put it. And, and yes, some of these saints are going to face death in Missouri. And it's not just, he that is faithful, the reward of the same is great in the kingdom of heaven, but it's he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is great. And then in verse 3, he starts out with, you can't imagine what's coming, the glory that's coming. But then out of the corner of his mouth, which shall follow after much tribulation. 
not just tribulation, but much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Then you're going to be crowned with much glory. But the tribulation is going to come first. And then verse 5, Remember this, which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. I want you to remember this little conversation that we're having. I'm warning you now, so you won't be surprised when it happens. Receive that which is to follow. Now, I'm not exactly sure what it is that he's referring to there. Is he referring to the blessings or to the tribulation? Or maybe it's both. Either way, he's saying, get ready. Buckle up. Things are going to get bad before they get good. This isn't the rolling out the red carpet kind of introduction to Zion. It's not the opening bell for Disneyland. It's the signing of the waiver form before the risky activity. And I find it interesting how the Lord refers to Missouri back in section 52, verse 42. And thus, even as I have said, if you are faithful, ye shall assemble yourselves together to rejoice upon the land of Missouri, which is the land of your inheritance, which is now the land of your enemies. Ooh, the land of your enemies. It does cause one to wonder why God would send them to the land of their enemies to establish Zion. And I'm afraid I'm not sure that I have the answer to that question. But it is a good one to ponder. Would, would greater faith be forged that way? Was this an example of the refiner's fire? Would things have worked out differently had the saints been more careful or obedient or faithful? I don't know. But the Lord sure seems to be warning them about what's coming. And for many of them, great blessings would come in Nauvoo and in Salt Lake. But for others, I'm sure those blessings didn't come until heaven. But just as Elder Holland said, for those that remain faithful, I do know that they came. So, Zion's own people realize that blessings come after tribulation. They are people that follow in life and death. They're stayers. They don't shrivel under the sun of persecution and tribulation. They're people that keep walking down the dusty road of life with their chins up because they know that good things are to come. Our next brick, course corrections. And as an activity for this section, see who can discover what each of the following verses have in common first. And then maybe even give a small treat to the person that can identify the common theme. And these verses are directed to four early members of the church, Edward Partridge, Martin Harris, William W. Phelps, and Ziba Peterson. And what do they all have in common? If you read them carefully, you'll notice that each receives some kind of correction from the Lord. Edward Partridge is told that if he doesn't repent of his sins, which are unbelief and blindness of heart, then he could lose his mission. Martin Harris is told in verse 39 to repent of his sins, for he seeketh the praise of the world. And that's quite a thing to say, uh, because Martin Harris has just been instructed to dedicate a large portion of his wealth to the purchase of lands and independence. And I know that sometimes Martin Harris gets a bit of a bad rap in church history, but I'm not so sure that's totally fair. He sacrificed a lot for the church. I think that most of us know that without Martin Harris, we wouldn't have had the publication of the Book of Mormon. 
But there's another fact that's not as well known. Without Martin Harris, we wouldn't have had the initial establishment of the city of Zion either. His wealth paid for a lot of the land that was purchased in the area. And yet, here he is being corrected by the Lord in the same breath. And I can imagine that would have been tough to take the correction at the very moment that he was making such a huge sacrifice for the church. Lesser men could have very easily been offended by it. But he takes it. And William W. Phelps is told to repent because he seeks to excel and wasn't sufficiently meek before God. And Ziba Peterson had that which was bestowed taken from him until he was sufficiently chastened for all his sins, for he confessed them not and thought to hide them. Those are some pretty severe chastisements. It's one thing to receive these kind of corrections from your leaders privately, but to have them publicly canonized in Scripture? It's a whole other level of correction here. But the key is that these men were able to take it and stay faithful. They didn't get offended. They accepted the correction and they moved on. So the principle? Zion's own people can handle correction. They recognize the importance of admonition and they're willing to receive that divine feedback without getting upset. Just imagine how you might react if your bishop publicly corrected you in front of your other ward members. Would you still stay committed to your faith and to your ward? I remember uh, once meeting with a sister on my mission who refused to return to church because the Relief Society teacher asked her to stop talking at the beginning of the lesson. Now, these men were spiritually mature enough and meek enough not to take offense at a much harsher criticism. If we wish to be Zion people, we too are going to need to learn how to accept and act on divine correction. The next brick, the powers that be. And for a quick activity, I like to share some crazy laws from around the United States. And these aren't a joke, but these are actual laws on the books in these specific states. So in Alabama, it's illegal to drive blindfolded. In California, it's illegal to whistle for a lost canary before 7 a.m. So if you're from California, don't even think about it. In Hawaii, it's illegal to put a coin in your ear. And in Montana, it's illegal to give a rat to someone as a present. In South Dakota, it's illegal to sleep in a cheese factory. And in Vermont, it's illegal for a woman to wear fake teeth without their husband's approval first. And then my favorite one. Uh, in my former home state of Arizona, it's illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. So uh, anyway, it's kind of fun to do that with your class. And those are some pretty strange laws. But they're really just silly examples. And, and most of the laws that we have in our country do make sense and are very reasonable. But these following verses have something to teach us about God's laws and man's laws. For verily I say unto you, my law shall be kept on this land. Let no man think he is ruler, but let God rule him that judgeth according to the counsel of his own will. Or, in other words, him that counseleth or sitteth upon the judgment seat. Let no man break the laws of the land. For he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. Wherefore, be subject to the powers that be. 
until he reigns whose right it is to reign, and subdues all enemies under his feet. Behold, the laws which ye have received from my hand are the laws of the church, and in this light ye shall hold them forth. Behold, here is wisdom. So we have two sets of laws being referred to here, the laws of God and the laws of the land. And the two don't always match up, do they? For example, the laws of God instruct us as members of the church not to drink alcohol or use tobacco products. But the laws of the land don't. The laws of God condemn adultery, but the laws of the land really don't. But on the other hand, the laws of God don't specifically cover things like traffic violations or building codes or business practices. Which of the two kinds of laws does God want us to live? Both, right? It's true that for us, the laws of God do supersede all others, but but he makes an important point. He that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. Wherefore, be subject to the powers that be. And, And we're supposed to live this way until Christ reigns as our king during the millennium. But for the time being, honor the powers that be. So the truth? Zion's own people are good citizens. They respect the laws of the land, and they do their utmost to uphold them. I mean, that's even one of our articles of faith. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Jesus was a good example of that principle. One of the reasons that he was rejected by lots of the Jews is because he was not really openly defiant to the Romans. Jews were looking for a savior that was going to free them politically. But Jesus wanted to free them spiritually. He knew that that was what was most important. So he says, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. We may not always agree with, or even like the powers that be, But that's no excuse for us to not do our utmost to be good citizens. Next, anxiously engaged. And for this brick, I like to do an object lesson. And what you need is a bike tire. And and I find that the smaller bike tires work best, like from a kid's bike. And then a piece of string tied in a loop. And what you do is you're going to loop the piece of string around the side of one of the axles, like this. And then ask them what they think will happen if I let go of the tire. And obviously, it's going to fall to the ground. But then, what if you spin the bike tire? What if you get it moving? And and what you'll see is if you spin it, the bike tire almost magically stays upright. And it's, it's kind of a cool thing. And then you're going to ask them to read section 58, verses 26 through 29, and explain how these verses relate to the object lesson. And I, and I do really love these verses. They're just, they're beautifully stated and simply worded. For behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore, he receiveth no reward. Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, 
and bring to pass much righteousness. For the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. And inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. But he that doeth not anything until he is commanded, and receiveth the commandment with doubtful heart, and keepeth it with slothfulness, the same is damned. Now, how is that like the object lesson? We've got to keep ourselves spinning if we don't want to fall. We should always be anxiously engaged in good things, always looking for something good to do with our time. It's when we slow down too much, when we stop making goals and plans and and just sit around and wait for somebody to tell us what to do, when we stop working hard on something worthwhile. That's when the adversary starts to move in and take control. These verses represent a higher form of obedience. So far in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord's been very direct and explicit in His commands. He's kind of held their hand and given them very specific instructions. But this is Zion now. He's going to start giving them some latitude. It's obedience on a higher level. Mature obedience. The kind that says, you're a big boy or a big girl now. Use your initiative. Use your judgment. Do many things of your own free will. I don't need to tell you everything that you need to do, do I? That's the slothful approach to obedience. And that's such a fun word to use, slothful. In my very first area of my mission in Brazil, in the central park of the city, there were all these sloths up in the trees. And I remember watching these little guys slowly picking their way through the branches. We might pass by the park in the morning and then, and then pass by again later in the day to see that they'd hardly moved at all. And in Portuguese, they have an even better name. They're called Ubicho Preguisa, which is the lazy beast. Well, God doesn't want lazy beasts in his kingdom. Lazy beasts receive no reward. And we might protest and say, but Lord, I did what you commanded. Yes, but only because you were compelled to. But I received your commandment. Yes, but with a doubtful heart. But I kept it. Yes, but with slothfulness. The Zion Zone person doesn't always need to be told exactly what to do. They recognize that the power is in them. These are very empowering verses. Remember that God's trying to make gods out of us. How can we reach his stature if we have no practice in making our own calls and using our own initiative to do good things? Like we said in a past lesson, God doesn't feel the need to micromanage us on everything. And I really love that about him. We've got so much freedom. He does give us specific commandments, and, and he's serious about us keeping them. Uh, look at verses 30 to 33, for example. But there's so much more that we get freedom to choose. That, that really isn't a matter of right and wrong. What career we have, the hobbies we pursue, the skills we develop, the style we wish to have. There's so much freedom. So he says, get out there, live your lives. I'll give you a few parameters and some things to avoid. But by and large, you're free to choose and bring to pass much righteousness. It's the Garden of Eden lesson. 
God's first says to Adam and Eve, Of all the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but just don't eat from this one tree. There's always so much more that we can do than we can't. So don't sit around and wait for a commandment on everything. We can do many things of our own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. When it comes to our callings, when it comes to our spiritual development, when it comes to our roles and responsibilities, our personal development, we can anxiously engage with our world and our mortal experience. And you're going to notice that the sections that follow 58 are ripe with examples of this newly granted latitude. And and let me do a few of these with you. I'll give you the verse, and you try to identify the anxiously engaged statement. So section 60, verse 5. As seemeth you good. 61.22. It mattereth not unto me, according to their judgments hereafter. 62.8. These things remain with you to do according to judgment and the directions of the Spirit. 63 verse 40, it mattereth not unto me. And then 63 44, behold, these things are in his own hands. Let him do according to wisdom. So the Zion zone person is anxiously engaged in good causes. The next brick, divine forgetfulness. Now these verses teach us some important elements of repentance. And what are they? How do we know if someone is truly repentant? They confess and forsake. And both of those are vital to our road to recovery. I've often had students ask me, what sins would cause someone to have to go and talk to the bishop? And I tell them that the wording of their question may reveal a bit of a misunderstanding. They think that confession is a punishment. When do I have to go and talk to the bishop? And I tell them that confession is not a part of the punishment of sin, but it's a part of the cure. God doesn't want you to go speak to the priesthood leader to humiliate you or to teach you a lesson, but to help you. So so you go to the bishop when you need help, when you need counsel, when you need somebody to talk to, when you feel guilty and and you just don't know how to get rid of it or, or what to do. It is true that the church tells us that serious sins should be resolved with priesthood leaders. But that's just because those are usually the kind of sins that do require outside help in order to overcome. So please, don't don't be afraid to confess. On the other hand, we need to forsake our sins as well and leave them behind confessing isn't enough to to just do that over and over again. We've also got to forsake. Don't return to your sins. And it's true that some sins take time to overcome and sometimes relapses occur. But it would definitely be an inappropriate attitude to live a life only confessing sin but never intending to try to really change. Confessing and forsaking are vital to the repentance process. You don't do one without the other. But then the part I love most about this section is the promise. If we're willing to repent, what does God assure us? 
he remembers them no more. God forgets our sins. He's not just a forgiving God. He's a forgetting God. And what a miracle. I like what he says in Ezekiel 33, verse 16. None of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Now, now we may remember our sins and we may mention them again, but God doesn't. And the activity that I like to do for this section is a story. The best thing that's helped me to understand this little truth is this imaginary scenario that, that my father has shared with me. And I'd like to have you imagine this as well. Imagine the judgment, the, the final judgment. And I don't like to imagine the judgment like a courtroom, but more like the way that our worthiness is judged here on earth, as an interview with a priesthood leader alone, just you and him, two chairs in a comfortable room. So for the judgment, I imagine myself walking into a room, and in the middle are these two beautiful wing-back chairs that are facing each other. And I sit down in one of them, and a door opens, and none other than Jesus Christ himself walks in and sits down in the other chair. And now we're looking at each other. And he says, this is your judgment. I'd like to ask you some questions about your worthiness to enter my kingdom. Did you obey my commandments? And what would you say to that question? I know what I would say. I would probably squeak out a very timid, I tried. To which the Savior says, well, let's see. And then between us, a little screen pops up and, and starts to play scenes from my life. And what does he show me? All the times that I've been obedient. All the times that I told the truth. The, the times I reached out to serve somebody. All the times that I resisted temptation or turned off the inappropriate music or movie. On and on, all the acts of obedience that I've done throughout my life. And then the screen disappears. And he looks at me again and he says, Well, did you obey my commandments? And after all that evidence, I'd probably say, Yes. And then he's just about to move on to the next question. When I can't help but interrupt him and say, hang on, wait a second. You only showed me the good things that I did. What about all my failures? What about all the times that I didn't choose the right? All the times that I didn't tell the truth or, or turn off the movie or, or help that person in need? You didn't show me any of those. And with that, he looks back at me with great love and he says, Oh, I don't remember that. And then he asks a second question. Did you preach my gospel? And again, I would say, I tried. To which he responds, well, let's see. The screen pops up again and, and the scenes begin to play. He shows me friends that I invited to church in my youth. Scenes from my two-year mission in Brazil. Uh, my efforts to share the gospel with my neighbors and the visits I made as a home teacher or a minister to try and reactivate less active families. And then the screen disappears. And he asks the question again. So, did you preach my gospel? And I say, yes, Lord. 
But what about my failures? What about all those times that I didn't share the gospel? All the times I kept to myself on the airplane, or all the times that I could have made more efforts to share and invite my neighbors, but but I didn't. Again, he looks at me with great love and he says, Oh, well, I don't remember that. The questions, they, they just continue on and on like that. Did you redeem the dead? Were you a good father? Were you a loving husband? Did you serve faithfully in your church calling? On and on like that. And each time, my failures forgotten. And do you feel the power in that verse and in the miracle of that promise? And how would that make you feel towards your Savior in that moment? Could you, could you feel anything other than unutterable love for a being that can forget? And that mercy can only be offered to the repentant, but it is offered. He remembers our sins no more. That's got to be one of my favorite principles of all the gospel. So the truth, a Zion's own person confesses and forsakes their sins and trusts in God's forgiveness and forgetfulness. Our next brick, commandment coronation. The first two verses here reiterate the importance of keeping the commandments. And the Lord promises a crown to those that do. And what will he crown them with? Three things. And so I like to imagine a crown with three beautiful jewels set in it. What are they? Well, two of them are what you'd probably expect. But the third's a bit of a surprising one. What are we crowned with? Blessings from above and revelations in their time which really makes sense, and and they're typical of the promises that we usually see for obedience. But what's the remaining blessing? What's the other jewel? Commandments? Not a few. It's like the Lord saying to us, so you've been obedient, and you've sacrificed, and you've worked so hard to walk in my straight and narrow path. You've kept my commandments. Do you want to know what your reward is? And we're all excited, and we say, what is it? What is it? you get more commandments. Not a few, but but lots more. And how do we react to that? We say, yay, good. We love your commandments, Lord. Wow, more rules. Thank you. Now, is that the way that we usually view commandments as a blessing? Something to be crowned with? Well, we say that if we understand the true nature of commandments. And there are some other places in the Doctrine and Covenants that that seem to send that same message. In Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 7, and gave unto him commandments which inspired him. In 51, 15, and thus I grant unto this people a privilege of organizing themselves according to my laws. And in 76, 7, and to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come, Will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom? You know, if there was any word that I could change in the gospel, if the Lord allowed me just one edit, it would probably be the word commandments. Because what part of that word immediately seems to jump out at you? Command, right? It kind of gives off that 
do what I say because I say so kind of vibe. But to me, that's not really the true spirit of commandments. Remember that wickedness never was happiness, but that righteousness always was happiness. So I would call them happy mints or divine help mints or godly guidance mints or how to live a blessed and joyful life so that Satan doesn't deceive you and make your life miserable mints. I don't know, but almost anything other than commandments. It is a sign of spiritual maturity when we realize the purpose of the rules. The commandments are not fences that keep us in, but guardrails that keep the bad stuff out. And that's a principle that the youth sometimes really struggle to understand. Because they're not always wild about rules, aren't they? And I like to ask them if they've ever felt like this when it comes to the commandments, like a person behind bars. And then I tell them, you know what? You're right. The commandments are like bars. Bars that protect you. Like when you go to the zoo, there's bars there, right? But how many people do you see begging to get into the tiger's cage? Do they complain and and say, gosh, they won't let us do anything around here. I hate all these restrictions. No, no, we're, we're grateful that the bars are there. Hopefully we see commandments the same way. They're blessings. They inspire us. They're a privilege. They represent the good pleasure of God's will. So a Zion zone people love to receive commandments. They see them as a reward. The next brick. Sabbath day suggestions. Now I can't help but go a little bit deeper on this section. It's one of the best places anywhere in Scripture on the Sabbath day. And sometimes I think we focus a lot on what we shouldn't do on the Sabbath, that it's a day of shouldn'ts. But I don't really like that approach, and it's not the approach that the Lord seems to use either. One of the things that displeased Jesus most about the Pharisees was their obsession with Sabbath day restrictions and rules. He even said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, The Sabbath is meant to bless man. It's a positive thing. So I like to look for the shoulds of the Sabbath day. And the activity that I use for this section is a study guide that can help your students better understand the goodness of the Sabbath. And I call it Sabbath day shoulds. I have them take some time to study these verses and fill in the answers to these questions. So let's start with the shoulds. In verse 9... We should go to the house of prayer. And that's one thing we can definitely do. Go to church. Go and worship with your fellow saints. Give of your time and talents and testimony to others while they do the same for you. And yes, personal and family worship is important and beneficial. But communal worship is also essential for our spiritual growth. Also in verse 9, offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. The primary purpose and focus of sacrament meeting is the sacrament itself. The sacrament is the way that we invite the cleansing power of Christ's atonement into our lives. Verse 10, we should rest from our labors. The Sabbath is a day of rest. I'm grateful for a Heavenly Father who understands the importance of rest in our lives. He set the example himself after the creation. And I think that rest can have a few different implications here. 
I think it's more than just a day of physical rest. It can be, and I, for one, do enjoy taking a quick nap after my meetings and interviews on Sunday. But as a bishop, and I know that many other callings carry heavy Sunday responsibilities as well, it may not always seem like a day of rest. But the rest could be defined differently as well. It could also just be a rest from worldly labors and concerns. It's good for our souls to take at least one day in the week to get away from the diversions and the labors and the temporal concerns of everyday life and devote it to spiritual matters. It's a day of rest from the world. When I look at it that way, it totally changes the nature of the the so-called shouldn'ts of the Sabbath. We're not looking for a list of things that we can't do on Sunday, but things that we get to rest from for just one day. We, we get to rest from professional concerns, from, from shopping and errands and from temporal needs. We get to turn our focus towards God and spiritual renewal. It's good for us. Another should in verse 10. We should pay our devotions unto the Most High. That's similar in theme to our last one. The Sabbath day can be a day where we dedicate our attention to God and recommit ourselves to him. Verse 12, we should offer our oblations and our sacraments unto the Most High. And I'm going to come back to that one in just a few minutes. Another in verse 12, we should confess our sins unto our brethren and before the Lord. And like we spoke about in section 58, confession can be a very healing thing. Sometimes that confession needs to be to our priesthood leaders, and sometimes it needs to be before the Lord. Verse 13, we should do none other thing. Now, that kind of sounds like a shouldn't, doesn't it? But it reinforces the idea of rest. It's true that there are things that we shouldn't do on the Sabbath, but he doesn't mention any here. I guess he's going to leave that up for us to decide. He doesn't want slothful servants that have to be commanded in all things. So look to the Spirit. Use your judgment. I'm sure that we could all figure out things that are probably better left to other days of the week. But I'm not going to prescribe to you what those things are. And then in verse 13, we should let our food be prepared with singleness of heart. And I think the singleness of heart phrase can be applied to more than just food preparation. But anything that we need to do on the Sabbath, it can be done with the proper frame of mind, or frame of heart, rather. It should be a heart focused on the purpose of the Sabbath. All things done with spiritual renewal and worship of God in mind. We try not to allow ourselves to be sidetracked by temporal concerns. Now, what are the blessings of the Sabbath? Verse 9, that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world. The world leaves a lot of spots on us as we go throughout the week. It's almost impossible to avoid them. It's not that we've jumped into the perilous pool with them, but all that splashing is sprinkled up onto our clothing and, and left us slightly stained. Now, if we never took the time to clean ourselves, eventually, we probably would end up looking like the rest of the world. But what makes the difference is our weekly day of worship that washes the stains away and gives us a a fresh start to our week. It's our Sabbath day spin cycle. Verse 10. Maybe this one was a bit of a harder one to find, but I would say here that the blessing is rest. And as we've already discussed, Rest 
renews us. Verse 13, joy. The Sabbath should bring us joy. And I really like how Isaiah put it in Isaiah 58, verse 13. The Sabbath can be a delight for us. I know that as I was growing up, my parents did some things to help make the Sabbath a delight for us. They always had a positive attitude towards going to church or having the home teachers over or enjoying a family gospel lesson together. Sometimes we'd play board games and do puzzles together. And then we always had the three D's in the evening. Dinner, Disney, and dessert. My mother, she'd always make a big special meal on that day, and, and then we'd sit down and watch a Disney movie together and eat ice cream. It did. It helped us to look forward to that day and to make the Sabbath a delight. And my wife and I have sought to implement these same things into our Sabbath day worship for our own children. So again, in verse 14, rejoicing. And then in verse 16, the fullness of the earth will be ours. So God seems to promise temporal blessings as well as spiritual ones for Sabbath day observance. And after reviewing these blessings, you can ask some of your students to share their answer to the next question. When have you seen one of these blessings in your life from Sabbath day observance? And there's a caution in verse 11. What is it and why do you think it's important? The caution is to not only offer up our vows of righteousness on Sunday, but on all days and at all times. We don't want to just be Sunday saints. We want to be daily disciples. I'm sure it's pretty discouraging to the Lord to see his people act one way on the Sabbath and then completely differently the rest of the week. It's called hypocrisy. Hopefully we can take up our cross daily in the name of the Savior and not just stash it in our closets next to our Sunday shoes and Sunday clothes. Now, I know that this next section of the guide may seem a bit redundant, but I did want to make a point with it. I was really intrigued by the verbiage that's used in, in many of the instructions of this section. Notice how often it mentions something that we are to give on the Sabbath. I think sometimes we might go to church just looking for and focusing on what church can do for us. But that may not be the best approach. We offer something when we go to church. If we can go to church looking for what we have to offer, it can really change the entire experience. And what do we offer? In verse 8, we offer a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And in verse 9, we offer up our sacraments. And we usually talk about partaking the sacrament. But here it tells us to offer our sacraments. Now, Christ is bringing something to offer on the table. His atonement his saving and enabling power. But what are we bringing? And the only thing that we can really offer that's ours to give is that broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's what we can lay on the table. Our will, our agency, our humility and desire to do as he's directed us. In verse 10, we pay our devotions unto the Most High. And devotion is loyalty, allegiance, or our consistency. In verse 11, we offer up our vows in righteousness. What are some of the vows that we offer? To take upon ourselves his name, keep his commandments, and always remember him. And then in verse 12, we offer our oblations and our sacraments unto the Most High. And I really love the word oblations. Look at the footnote definition. Their offerings 
whether of time, talents, or means, in service of God and fellow man. How's that for a should or for an offering? We come to church to offer our time, talents, and means in service to others. So a Zion zone people find joy and purpose in the Sabbath day. And then our final brick here, creation relation. And for an activity with these verses, another short video. A number of years ago, I remember when the BBC put out a new nature documentary called Planet Earth. And I just remember being completely transfixed by it. I'd never seen a nature documentary done so well. And it, and it just reminded me of how amazing and beautiful our planet is. So to begin this section, I might show my class a quick trailer for the show that, that does a good job of displaying a lot of the beauties and wonders of our planet. Before I start it, I ask them to focus on what our planet reveals about our Heavenly Father. Some of the things that I notice are that he loves color and diversity and beauty. And he really didn't have to create a world as amazing as we have right now. He could have made it monochromatic or mundane or uniform. But instead, he gave us grandeur and artistry and intricateness. And that's a principle that's near and dear to my heart. I imagine you've been able to sense my love and enthusiasm for the outdoors over the years that we've studied together. I know that many of my examples and illustrations revolve around outdoor activities. And that's why I love these verses that offer so much great insight on how we're to view and use the resources of the earth. And here's how they can help us. There are kind of two sides to the environmental debate. And sometimes we find ourselves swinging too far to one of the extremes. On one side, we have the idea that earth was made for man and we should use it all we want. That man can and, and should conquer nature and tame it and take advantage of the wealth that it can provide us. On the other side is the idea that man was made for the earth. That man should not use its resources. That things need to be left exactly how they are found. That the earth should be completely protected. That no animal life should be taken. No trees cut down. And no industry created. On which of those two sides does God seem to fall? Well, let's see what he says. Verily I say that inasmuch as ye do this, the fullness of the earth is yours, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and that which climbeth upon the trees and walketh upon the earth. Yea, and the herb and the good things which come of the earth, whether for food or for raiment or for houses or for barns or for orchards or for gardens or for vineyards. Yea, all things which come of the earth, in the season thereof, are made for the benefit and the use of man, both to please the eye and to gladden the heart, yea, for food and for raiment, for taste and for smell, to strengthen the body and to enliven the soul. And it pleaseth God that he hath given all these things unto man, for unto this end were they made to be used, with judgment, not to excess, neither by extortion. So which side does he seem to come down on? As you might expect, he seems to be right in the middle. We've talked about this before. This is, this is another balancing principle, the middle way. So on one side, he tells us that, yes, 
the resources of the earth have been made for our use. So it's okay to cut down trees to build a home. It's okay to mine the hillsides for ore. It's okay to take animal life to eat. The earth was made for man and not vice versa. However, there's a balancing principle here too. These things were made to be used with judgment though, and not to excess and not by extortion. We've got to be wise in our use of the earth's resources. It's not just take all you can get, use, use, use with no thought for renewal or beauty or future impact. Some things have been created for food, raiment, houses, barns, and gardens. But then there's also other things that have been put on this earth for just the sole purpose of pleasing the eye or gladdening the heart, enlivening the soul. So it's okay to cut down trees to produce lumber that will allow you to build a home. But you don't cut down the giant redwoods or the sequoias to make railroad ties. And yes, we've got to do something with our trash and waste, and we're going to have to dedicate some areas of the planet for that purpose. But you don't look at the Grand Canyon and say, what a perfect natural landfill. Let's put all our trash in here. And yes, we can eat chicken and pork and beef and fish. However, I think there's a difference between killing a chicken and killing a bald eagle. Some things are made for the use of man, for food and for raiment, while others are just there to please the eye and to gladden the heart. Maybe another area where taking animal life would be justified is, is when there's pests that are causing destruction to property. I believe that God would probably approve of us setting mousetraps or for ranchers to kill coyotes that are threatening their livestock. So I think that God wishes us to use this beautiful planet wisely and to appreciate it. The earth itself teaches us something amazing about the personality of God. It says that it pleases him to give us these things. It pleases him to give us beautiful places to live and experience life. He didn't have to make food taste delicious or flowers smell good or fill the earth with amazing landscapes and colors and varieties of animal life. When I go hiking or climbing or backpacking, I really do feel a closeness to my Heavenly Father, and it helps me to understand more fully what kind of being He is. Just think of the creations of God that you enjoy most. What creations please your eye and gladden your heart and enliven your soul? For me, standing on the peaks of the Wasatch Front or, or the Uintas, hiking through slot canyons and arches in the red rock country of southern Utah. I felt my Heavenly Father's love while backpacking in Glacier National Park or looking into the geysers and the colorful pools of Yellowstone, or standing at the edge of Niagara Falls. I've also felt it looking up at the giant fjords of Norway or the beautiful snow-capped Alps, the jagged mountains of Guilin in China, the glaciers of Alaska, the jungles of Central America, and the crystal blue waters of the Caribbean. There are so many other places on this planet that I have yet to have had the privilege of exploring. Some of the places that I want to see before I die are the Himalayas, Hawaii and Fiji, the big game animals of Africa. I want to see New Zealand and Patagonia. God willing, I'll get a chance to enjoy those beauties as well. The earth is just so big and it has so much to offer us. 
Hopefully, we can spend our lives letting it please our eyes, gladden our hearts, and enliven our souls. So, a Zion Zone people understand the balance of the Earth's resources and are grateful for God's creations. Well, I know that was a lot. And in one class period, you probably won't have time to do that at all. But whatever you do cover, you should try to give your students the last minutes of the class to liken the scriptures unto themselves, to choose at least one of the bricks that they want to focus on a little more than the others. You could give them this application activity to help them in that process. What it has them do is is choose one of the bricks that they feel they most need to focus on that next week. And then it asks them a like in the scriptures question that's specific to that brick. And then it leaves a space for them to write in what their next action would be to more fully apply that Zion zone attitude in their lives. And this activity can, can help make the lesson much more specific and personalized to each individual. And I'm not going to go through each of the questions with you here, but I do encourage you to take a look at it if you plan to teach this as a lesson. I've found that it can be a very meaningful experience for students to have this brief, quiet, pondering time to reflect on what they've learned that day. And I hope that you've learned something today from our time together. And you know what? There are a lot of other principles that we could have covered in here. But I do feel that what we've covered can help you to better understand a Zion Zone disposition. I'd like to conclude with a verse of promise from the final verses of section 59, verse 23. But learn that he who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Well, may those blessings be yours. I testify that they will be as you strive to do the works of righteousness that we've talked about today. And thank you for joining me. Gosh, the scriptures are so good, aren't they? These are such powerhouse sections. Ah, I wish we had more time. But it's been really fun to revisit them and dig a little more deeply into them with you. And now the usual spiel. If you're interested in the slide presentation that I've used here, or the handouts, or you'd like a lesson plan that follows what we've talked about, Go to teachingwithpower.com and you're going to find links to those resources. If you'd like to help the channel to grow and reach more people, please subscribe, hit the like button, make a comment, and most of all, share it with those that you feel it could help. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.